Thanks. All right, good afternoon. I understand you guys have had uh, a long day, so I'll try to keep this somewhat funny. Um, so a few questions. Uh, I guess the first thing, when I started medicine, I was in a small town of about 14,000 in Festus, uh, when a doctor told me, a family practitioner, um, patients like when you do something for them. Whether or not they need it, they like when you do something. If they take time off, they come in, they have a cold, they're not feeling well, they like something. It doesn't mean every time somebody walks into your office, clears their throat, you give them a Z-Pack and prednisone, but there are things you can do in the office that aren't expensive, that don't have morbidity. Um, those are things that I'm kind of going to talk about today, things in a dermatology office that can really save us. So um, my nurse actually did me a huge favor yesterday and called Quest and LabCorp uh, and found out kind of what things cost. So does anybody know how much just a little scraping of a small eczema herpeticum lesion for HSV-1 and 2 PCR? Any, any idea I shouted out? It's $358.80. If you back that up with a culture, because you want to see if there's acyclovir resistance, you add on an additional $303.68. Whether the insurance pays that, I don't know. Um, how much do you think a fungal culture costs at Quest Lab Diagnostics? And how long does it take to get the answer? Well, a dermatophyte may be four to six weeks. Um, it's $161.20, and the patient doesn't get an answer right away. So there are things that we can do, so we call this the skinny undermetallotic procedures, just things you can do in an office that are easy, cheap, uh, and really give the patient some, uh, some rest of heart. All right, so I have no relevant financial relationships to disclose, unfortunately. Um, I was born in 1984, my parents named me George Michael, um, just a bad, bad coincidence, I don't wear leather pants. All right, so skin disease affects everybody, even my ex-girlfriend here on the screen. Um, George Washington was quoted as saying, most of my patients are, in fact, this eloquent. Um, an irritable spot on my right cheek had years been increasing in pricking um, and disagreeable sensations. So I hear that all the time, this is disagreeable. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, during his two terms, uh, had basal cell twice. And Troy Aikman, I believe a three-time Super Bowl champion, I know there's some Texans in here, I apologize if that's incorrect, uh, survived melanoma. So about 7% of all adult, uh, adult outpatients have a primary skin complaint. That's not just in a dermatologist, that could be in a hospital, primary care doctor, et cetera. Uh, so dermatology, we, there was a big debate this year at the American Academy whether we should be called dermatology and dermatologic surgeons, but we do both. I don't speak Greek, so we'll skip that part, and I don't even know how I spelled that. Google may have been incorrect. Um, so things we like to do in the office, history is our number one most important thing, uh, as well as our eyes. Um, and then we have the dermatoscope, which is becoming very, very popular. Um, I've seen almost every office and every residency program now training. A little too expensive for my taste, so I just use the free one in clinic. Um, so dermatology, approach to the patient. This talk is kind of based for everybody, from someone who just graduated from school to somebody who's been doing this for 20 years. I like to read it every once in a while to remind myself how to really encounter with a patient. So when did it start? Exacerbating, relieving factors, all these are really important. Uh, what are your symptoms? Um, how have you treated it? Has it worked? Has it made it worse? So physical exam, you want a completely undressed patient. Um, I always do recommend that you have a chaperone of the opposite sex. I think you're doing a disservice to your patients if you don't look everywhere when they're in the room. That's what they came for. Um, so private areas, don't be afraid to ask, you know, sir or ma'am, do you have something in a, you know, a location you might be embarrassed about? Um, and then skin is occluded to systemic disease. This is also important. So levodoreticularis, 
kind of a vascular condition uh, with this purplish discoloration. Can be uh, lacy, can be net-like, or aggravated by cold exposure. Uh, connective tissue diseases can cause this. Uh, Reed syndrome, uh, things like little derriere sign, you just tickle a little lesion, it kind of vibrates in pyloorexes. That can give you an you know, idea of underlying uh, um, uterine fibromas. So this is just basic stuff. So tools we use is kind of the skinny uh, part of my, procedure, of my presentation. So handheld magnifying tail dermoscopy. Uh, the big thing you want to ask yourself when you pick one of these up, is this pigmented or is this not pigmented? And then when you go from there, you kind of take your tree down for a pigmented lesion. Am I worried about this? Am I not worried about this? If it's not pigmented, you got a whole bunch of other things. This is an example of an arborizing pattern of uh, blood vessels you'd see with a basal cell. There's lots of different keywords and lots of different, different methods. I was taught the Menzies method by one of my mentors, Dr. Tarbox. I'm not going to go into detail on this as I'm not an expert, but it's great to have one of these in clinic. So next, a microscope. You can do a ton of stuff with just your plain old office tools. Uh, and office stock that don't cost money and give answers. So things we're going to go over details on, and really, I learned this my first day of residency, and I even reviewed it again last week when I had a patient uh, who needed a Zank. So KOH, scabies preps, trichogram, and Zanks, which are really, really important. And I'll actually show you, I took a picture with my iPhone uh, that I added on this morning of a really neat patient. So materials for a KOH prep. Uh, sterile 15 blade for nail and for skin, and then a forceps for hair. Uh, why would you do one for hair? Well, you can see uh, if you have what type of organism, you can guess if it's uh, inside or outside the hair. It's pretty important. 70% alcohol you can or cannot use. Some people clean the surface to wipe off debris and mostly other things that patients have been putting on there, whether they're topical steroids, etc. cetera. Uh, glass slides and microscope. Disposable pipettes or a squirt bottle of KOH. Uh, microscope itself and then the KOH. So what is KOH? It's a very, very strong base. Uh, it dissolves tissue cells and uh, keratinized material, making fungal elements and other parasites more visible. Uh, the cellular chitin makes fungal elements resistant to the denaturization of the KOH. Um, and DMSO, which you often see right next door to the KOH and then the percentage, it kind of helps with the, uh, um, accelerate the process with or without heat. Some dermatopathologists don't, don't favor heat. So the shelf life's about a year. I've looked at my call bag last week and it was like three years old, it still works fine. <laughs> All right, so you wanna cleanse the skin um, really to take off debris. If the patient said, I've put nothing on this in two weeks, you don't need to do that. Uh, you wanna use the edge of a glass slide. When I do this on kids, I always use two glass slides. When I do this on the adult, I like to use the 15 blade. I just find it more efficacious. Um, if you have a bullous lesion, Big thing you want to remember, if you think it's a vesicular eruption, you want to take fluid from the base of the vesicle. If you think this is bullous tinea, you want to get it from the undersurface of what you scrape off. Sounds silly, but that's just important things and you're really not going to uh, have a very you know, accurate test if you don't do it correctly. So you want to place it under a clean glass slide. You want to scrape it. Try, you know, I usually wear gloves so you're not getting skin all over you. Add a couple drops. Uh, it's important to label the specimen's name. I can't think of how many times, especially in a multi-practice facility, where there's 10 people who are sticking slides and working, you know, sharing 15 rooms and push one to the side to look at yours and then somebody throws another one in the sharps. You have to do it again. Just label it with the patient's name. Um, cover slip and then allow the KOH for about 15 to 30 minutes. I never do 15 to 30 minutes. I use a little bit um, lighter, and I'm ready to go in about a minute or two. So things you want to look at. Fungi, they have uh, definite cell walls. Try to describe the morphology in your note if you can. Presence or absence of hyphae. Uh, note the color and talk about lightness or darkness. 
Uh, chlamydia spores can often be uh, suggestive of, of a dermatophyte, not necessarily indicative of. Spaghetti and meatballs are a big term for tinea versicolor. And you don't always need to do this for tinea versicolor. We know what that looks like. But if a patient has a hypo or depigmented process, may or may not enhance a wood's lamp, you know, why not? It's good educational value and it's always good practice. And then budding yeast, uh, indicative of candida. So scabies. Um, oftentimes you can get uh, an inflammatory response to scabies. You can even get an id reaction to scabies or dermatophyte infection. So you really want to make sure you pick kind of an active burrow. Uh, sometimes I've had HIV patients or immunosuppressed patients in the hospital with uh, Norwegian or crusted scabies. Literally I could have flicked them and looked in the microscope and we would have gotten it, but that's not always the case. Look places like web spaces. Uh, don't be afraid to ask a male about the private areas. Uh, off, a big time place that females are affected by are right around the uh, perioral, periareolar areas. Um, so, you know, do a good scraping. You have to get down, get a little blood, tell them it's going to hurt a little bit. Uh, I just use a little bit of mineral oil. I do cover it with a cover slip, not because I need to, but because it can make the microscope messy if your stage is too high or your platform, and then you can have some trouble. So, a zinc smear. This is one of my favorite things to do because you know, what did I say, $661, $662.48 is what it costs to do a PCR in viral skin culture, when if you have a distribution, immunocompetent patient, you can probably tell if this is VZV or HSV, which you can't tell definitively from this. Um, so you really want to take a fresh vesicle. If you have something that's crusted that's been there for two weeks, or varicelliform type eruption like in, uh, I'm sure you'll see in the next talk on viral xanthems, um, you need a fresh one, not something that's crusted. Uh, take the mushy debris from the base of the vesicles I alluded to earlier, not from underneath the surface. That's not going to be anything but dead skin that the virus has either already colonized or destroyed, or it's flaked off and may not be there. Uh, do a couple vesicles. Why not improve your chances of, of validity? So this is when I took a picture with my iPhone. I had a uh, nurse come down yesterday, said I had something in my chin. I grabbed some Trinex out of the cabinet, put it on. Uh, now my lymph nodes are inflamed. Uh, this is right under her chin, so I scraped it and, uh, and got this. I thought this was fascinating. Um, you can see multinucleation, molding margination, which we'll go over our big keys. But, you know, we knew exactly how to treat her with history. We knew it was the first time. Give her two grams twice daily for 24 hours. Uh, if she doesn't recur, we won't prophylax. So I always heat the slide a little bit. You're not going to destroy your tissue. Don't be afraid. You're not looking for virus. You're looking for cells that have been affected by virus. So I take, I usually use a lighter, it's easier. Um, I place, I usually use right stain. It's available in the clinic. Once again, my right stain and call bag expired two years ago. It still worked fine this morning. Um, let the stain on for about a minute. I always put it at about a 45 degree angle um, and then let it drip down. You don't want to squirt anything too fast because then you'll wipe your cells right off even if you fix them. I wait about a minute, minute and a half, tell the patient I'll be right back. Um, and just use, I usually use dissolved, or excuse me, um, diluted water and just kind of run it very, very slowly, one drop at a time until the stain runs off. Wait another minute and then look at it without a cover slip. I never usually use immersion oil. Bologna says you can, I don't think it's necessary. So the big three M's you really want to look for are molding, which are nuclei that are kind of sitting right on top of each other. Uh, margination, so the center, which we saw, we can go back a few. On this one, well, that's not a great one, but the center of it, as we'll move on and see in a picture here, is completely clear, and then you've got this margination of the chromatin, almost this blue kind of squiggly lines that just go uh, right around the perimeter, and then multinucleation. So we can see even in the iPhone picture, all of these cells that are multinucleated, those are all hunks of cells hanging together, almost like 30 or 40 in one.
All right, some more pictures of those. So biopsies of the skin. Uh, a close friend who's a PA also works with us asked me, you know, I think something to be important is when do you do a shave? When do you do a punch? When do you do direct immunofluorescence? Once again, a biopsy of the skin, just for one punch biopsy, in-office procedure, uh, this is at St. Louis University, it's where I work, uh, with processing of the slide and regular reads without extra cuts, deepers, uh, immunofluorescence stains, anything, $329. Um, so you really want to make sure you have you know, a good answer. You're doing it for the right reason. So things you want, you need um, shape biopsies, punch biopsies. We have incisional biopsies and excisional biopsies, and then wedge biopsy, which is kind of in between incisional and excisional. When do you do direct immunofluorescence? Kind of the big three, as I call them. Immunobullous diseases, collagen vascular diseases, where you're looking for something like a lupus full house, uh, or vasculitic processes. Now, vasculitic processes are not always because of an, uh, you know, a direct immunofluorescence type problem. They could be because of you know, just infection, or a drug could do it without having a positive. But when you have a positive, it's pretty neat to see. So a shave biopsy, when are you going to use this? Carcinomas, cutaneous lymphomas, benign neoplasms. We already know when there's a small papule we want to shave off, but I'm going to touch on some more important things that pathologists have told me. If you have a pigmented lesion, make sure you get either all the way around it so you have normal skin. Never do a punch biopsy for that. They don't like it. Unless you really need to do a representative sample, it's huge, cosmetically sensitive area on a kid face. But a scoop biopsy, a scoop shave is just as good, if not better, uh, than a punch biopsy of a pigmented lesion. Next, cutaneous lymphoma. I had a patient come in. She was a 73-year-old Caucasian female, two-year history of a scaly eruption on her bottom, uh, breasts, arms, legs. She had about 35 to 40%. She'd been treated with topical steroids didn't do anything. Um, hydroxazine didn't do anything. Uh, her biopsy was performed. She had two punch biopsies from her arm. Uh, she was wearing a short sleeve shirt in the room. It was obvious that it had sun exposure. So got her in a gown, brought my nurse in. We looked absolutely everywhere. Her bottom actually had cleared up at that point. We did a long shave, uh, skinny shave of her right breast. First question I asked her, ma'am, you know, how provocatively do you dress? Her daughter laughed because she was 73. She said, I never wear low-cut shirts. We found mycosis fungoides uh, with over 10% just right on her like that after two years of uh, fighting with it. So, Next, when to do a punch biopsy. So an eruption or an inflammatory condition. Inflammatory conditions can include you know, viral infections, connective tissue diseases, uh, or anything that you're concerned, especially paniculitidae is a trick that I like to do, um, is take, or calciphylaxis, for example, I take a bigger punch, like an eight, Instead of having to do an incision, scalpel blades and surgical trays scare patients, and they take longer. Do a six or eight millimeter punch, go all the way down, take your scissors cut out, and then do a second punch right below it. You can put them in the same biopsy tube and just make sure you let your doctors, uh, your pathologists know. So when to do an incisional biopsy? Well, something's cosmetically sensitive, or you're very concerned for a massive, massive, massive melanoma that's probably going to require a stage excision. You don't really want to mess up the lymphatics. Uh, you know, that's okay to do an incisional biopsy. And then excisional biopsy is something you've got, you're pretty concerned for melanoma. It's not lenigo malignant on the face, just a small lesion maybe on a young person's extremity. You know, take your appropriate margins based upon how long she says it's been there. And excisionals, uh, you know, fusiform excisions are, are very helpful. So direct uh, right here, anybody know what this is right here? Our fishnet from school, so probably pemphigus vulgaris. Uh, could also be like pemphigus vegetans, so immunobolus, collagen vascular um, diseases are most important to do this, and then also vasculitis.
All right, so other serology studies that can help you. Once again, these things always cost money. Any type of uh, connective tissue disease, ANA with reflex is always a good screen. I never start with just ANA and everything else. I usually do the reflex if it's positive, then you're going to have other things. But remember, you can have false positives, so reflexes are not always great. So patch testing. We do this um, in our office, not just true testing, but full uh, patch testing at St. Louis University, Dr. Nicole Burkemper. It detects a delayed type 4 uh, hypersensitivity. Uh, this is not something I jump to right away because, once again, it's expensive, but it's something, it's also a pain in the summer. It takes a long time, sometimes a week off work, especially if somebody does manual labor. So a true test is a good start. It's got a few allergens, nickel. Uh, I believe it's up to 32 now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but things I like to try first are elimination techniques, go into fragrance-free type products. But if not, so example right here, shoe dermatitis. This is something we can test with a true test. This is probably potassium dichromate from her leather shoes. Instead of immediately testing this young lady, you could probably say, hey, maybe order shoes from this website, provide them the information that have rubber-only shoes. Unless you think they have a rubber allergy, you can get them some Dutch shoes. I don't know. All right, so this is what we do. We fill these little wells with aluminum. Never be afraid. Sometimes the aluminum itself, usually not allergic, but can be. Have them come back two different times, once at uh, day three and then once again at day five. Look at them both times. Um, I have a little thing that I tell patients education-wise before they do patch testing. Try to avoid systemic steroids for at least two weeks. Try to avoid artificial or official tanning uh, at least two to four weeks prior to coming in. You're not going to get the response you might want otherwise. All right, so dermatology therapy is just for a few different things by diagnosis. Um, acne, oral and topical antibiotics. I think that educating the patient is most important for things like this. Um, and also being inquisitive with a patient. I think that, uh, I'm not going to go over all the details for these, but I had a patient yesterday who was talking about compliance. Oh, I just don't really take them. 17-year-old gal in minocycline, you know, I'm looking at her gums, I'm looking at her shins, I don't see any pigment problems. You know, why are you not taking them? And finally, she was getting a little bit headaches. So the vertigo never went away as she was, you know, instructed at first. So communication is important. So psoriasis, we have a lot of different things. We're going to talk a little bit about proper technique for intralesional steroids. And then phototherapy, also something you can do in the office. This is not as inexpensive for the patient, even though compared to a $17,000 a year, you know, Humira medication, this is cheap. But a patient uh, may have to pay $30 copay every time they walk in three times a week, 30 times a week times four weeks. You know, that, that eventually builds up. All right. So verruca vulgaris, we see this a lot in clinic. Uh, things we can do, liquid nitrogen. So there is a technique to liquid nitrogen. It's not something that you just you know, squirt that any you know, family practice doc or non-dermatology uh, physician or PA could, could do. There's a technique to it. So why do I like it? A, it's safe. It's safe in pregnancy. It's safe in young folks. It's safe in, in elderly people. There's no, no late, uh, age limitation to it. It's very, very cheap. Um, but you have to be careful. I can't remember how many times on call I've received phone calls, you know, that I'm blistering, that it's burning, that's, you know, the worst pain ever. Why didn't you just cut it out? So things I always like to do, kids move. So if you're using, you got to really assume, you know, look where you're treating. If you're treating a tiny filiform uh, verrucae on the cheek, maybe use what I call the platypus forceps, dip it, use something like that. You don't do normal skin damage. Two, look at the color of your patient's skin. Know the Fitz, it's Pitts, I cannot talk today, sorry, Fitzpatrick type. Um, the number one cell that liquid nitrogen is most susceptible to hurting is the melanocyte. You do something on a darker skin patient's face just for something small, they're not going to be thrilled with you. 
Um, and then also know what you're dealing with, how big it is. Uh, if it's a kid that's moving around a lot, I don't like to use the liquid nitrogen gun. Guns scare people. Uh, use a Q-tip, old-fashioned, never hurts. And then the technique that I really like to use when I'm doing the canister is put my pinky on the patient, use the trigger across my finger, and then if they move, I move with them. I usually get about three to four inches from them and do short bursts, depending on if I'm treating an accident, keratosis, veruca, have the kids count along with me. All right, so Mohs surgery, you just had one of the best in St. Louis, if not the best, talk to you about that, so I'm going to skip that. And then intralesional steroids, this is another intraoffice procedure that really, really can be helpful. So what is it for? It's for localized disorders where one, topical medications aren't working because the stratum corneum is too thick. Uh, however, maybe systemic therapy is just best avoided. You don't want to put this person on steroids, they've already got problems with osteoporosis, etc., or they don't sleep well. Um, so you want to dilute to your desired concentration, depends on what you're treating, and also the location you are treating uh, and how thick the lesion is. Um, so why do you want to do it? To bypass a very thick stratum corneum and also to treat a dermal inflammatory process and try to avoid the sometimes unavoidable problem of causing epidermal atrophy. So these are a couple things. You've got a keloid in the right corner, uh, necrobiosis diabeticorum um, in the left, a dioscopy showing kind of that apple jelly birefringence of derriere Rousey sar sarcoid, and then alopecia areata. So we have a ton of different reasons why we do this. Uh, the key point I wanted to make is on NLD, which you can see up in the corner, uh, left corner, is you don't want to treat the center. Why? Because one of the biggest problems is you can cause atrophy, you can cause necrosis, and you can make the condition worse. So you really want to identify kind of the very erythematous active border. All right, so tips, I always, always, always draw back before injecting near the face and scalp. Very, very, very rare case reports of, of uh, backwards travel to eyes and retinal vessels. I never had it, never seen it. I talked to the ophthalmologist across the hall. They've never seen it, but I still always draw back. Make sure you're not in a vessel. Also, it's most important to counsel each patient that you see and explain the risks and benefits. Uh, so like I said, know your skin types, know your location, and know your strength. So techniques like I like to do, same thing. I always kind of go in at a 45 degree angle. Um, quick poke and then slow push, just like you would lidocaine. Um, other things I like to do is, like I said, draw back on the face and make sure you've identified the lesion itself. I don't ever usually numb before I do this. I'll do topical numbing because you can lose sight of your lesion. If you've got a parigo nodule and you blow it up, the epinephrine, as we just saw in pictures, the presentation below whitens it out. You may not know where you're shooting into, especially if you've just done diascopy on something like a derriere sarcoidosis, you might lose the lesion. So adverse effects, post-inflammatory, whether hyper or hypopigmentation. Your largest concern is going to be in a darker skinned person causing hypopigmentation. Epidermal atrophy is one of the reasons we try to use this and go deeper into a lesion if we have something granulomatous. GA is another example. Fat atrophy, uh, warn them, you know, if it's some, a concavity, you may have a divot. If it's an area that's already convex, they may not notice a larger divot, but still tell them. Um, in a patient that's a poorly controlled diabetic, even though you're only putting this medicine into the top portion of the skin, you know, they could have elevation of blood pressure. They could also have elevation of blood glucose or worsening of eye findings. You could also tell them, hey, this may not do anything. I've, you know, cranked it up to 40 uh, milligrams per milliliter and entire CC and keloids, and they still didn't do anything. All right, so let me see how I'm doing on time. I'm a little bit short. We'll breeze through a couple cosmetic dermatology. You'll get some more of the workshop tomorrow. Uh, so this chart I just found very, very, very important. These are the FDA indications for Botox, Botox Cosmetic, Xeomin, and Myoblock. 
Um, this doesn't mean this is all you can use it for, but these are the ones that I talked about in my pearls I would, uh, I would go through. All right, so let's go back here. So what is it? It's a group um, of Botox that affects neural transmission and neural function. You've got lots of different types, A through G. You try to create chemical denervation and atrophy of muscles by blocking the acetylcholine release from the presynaptic terminals. So we've got a couple different chemicals we work with. One is SNAP25, one is synaptobrevin. Probably not important unless you're taking a test. Why do we use this? Uh, muscle hyperactivity. Uh, so patients that maybe has blepharospasm, I've had that done for me before. You have to do it on both eyes or else you look a little funny. Uh, hyperhidrosis, um, migraines. There's been some great studies for that, even just using tiny, tiny amounts um, in the back of the neck or in the uh, fascial planes along the temporal region, myofascial planes. And then uh, cosmetic are used to weaken and relax muscles that uh, can smooth hyperfunctional lines. Who is this best used in? Believe it or not, somebody at the age between 30 and 50 because you can't really affect skin atrophy at that point. Once somebody's already got atrophy and drooping, it's not going to do anything for that. So myoblock, it's used for cervical dystonia. I've never used this, and I hope in my career to probably never use this. All right, so how to handle Botox. Each office does this differently, and different people do this differently. Uh, some doctors prepare it themselves, some PAs themselves, some have medical assistants, nurses. What you really want to know is consistency. Uh, Dr. Deanna Glazer, who taught me all about you know, Botox and, and uh, botulinum toxins, she says, why make it difficult on yourself? Make something easy to measure and easy to count. So how does she dilute her Botox? She dilutes it so she can count it easily, and each unit represents a certain amount, and you can see on your syringes depending on which ones you buy. So she does uh, reports as 2.5 milliliters. Also, preserved versus non-preserved saline. I'm sure everybody's heard about this. We use preserve, why it doesn't hurt as bad. Um, and also the shelf life. Some say once it's mixed four hours, we keep it refrigerated for about a week and have never had any complaints. So the effects usually kick in about one to three days. Uh, and obvious for three to four months. It's like sticking your arm in a cast. If you keep your arm in there for three months, take it out and wiggle it around and put it right back in. You know, next time you wiggle it around, the muscle may get less and less and less. So you may not need to do three to month interval. Sorry if that was a weird analogy, but I was recently had a broken arm. Um, and eventually you get long-term remodeling of the dermis and the epidermis to try to sustain the cosmetic effect. Uh, like I said earlier, patients 30 to 50 years old are most responsive um, because they haven't lost that skin elasticity yet. Or you try to catch them before the muscle um, contraction contributes to that. So targeted um, wrinkles that we have here, glabella region or your corrugator, uh, the horizontal creases across the bridge of the nose, there's the procerus muscle, all these are labeled. Crow's feet, which we're looking, you know, attempting to get FDA approval of, it's on its way. Perioral, your orbicularis oris muscle. The forehead, the frontalis, chin, the mentalis, lateral corners of the mouth, and the bunny lines in nasalis, and then also a muscle I like to frequently inject with a small, small amount, kind of right up in here, uh, your little pterygoid muscle that kind of helps with a gummy smile. All right, so injections can be given intramuscularly, subcutaneously, and intradermally. It depends where you're injecting. Uh, know where you're injecting and visualize the area first. So if you're going to do a crow's feet type injection, look how superficial the vessels are. Are you going to hurt them? Probably not, but you should could bruise them. And if they're coming in to do this before a wedding, they're not going to be thrilled with you. You can use topical anesthetics. Oftentimes, ice does just as well. Uh, and the other thing about ice in a uh, crow's feet type area is it can cause the vessels to kind of constrict a little bit, so you may avoid bruising as well as pain. So it is approved for glabellar wrinkles. Um, men require 
greater doses than women. I've met some very angry women that I disagree with that statement. So you want to insert the needle just above the uh, superior orbital rim and directly above the intercanthus, at about seven to eight units in females and about 15 to 20 in men, and repeat on the, repeat on the opposite side of the brow. And you can use about five to 10 in the Perseris, depending on how strong that anger line is. Uh, mid superorbital rim and the mid pupillary line, I like to do about four to five, about one centimeter above that line. Uh, it's most likely to cause eyebotosis, and then also uh, avoid injection to the later papillary superioris. You don't want somebody coming in looking confused or drunk. These are directly from the Allergan website. They don't pay me, as I told you earlier. Um, and then currently off-label is our crow's feet, kind of going over some of that, as well as um, forehead uh, frontalis muscle. What you have to be most careful about when you do a frontalis muscle is kind of see how big is this person's forehead. If you can get away with a tiny, tiny bit up there, you know, three to four units, five to six units, you're fine. And also maybe do a little brow lift with it, you know, bricularis or uh, oculi muscle at the perimeter to help. You never just want to do the frontalis muscle because then you could kind of create that baggage right there. Other thing is, before you ever inject Botox, if a patient is considering some sort of a surgical intervention, have them get tested for peripheral vision first before you inject, because their test isn't going to mean much, and then they're going to lose possible insurance coverage for that procedure. So brow lifting as well as uh, can diffuse into the frontalis muscle. So if you do a little bit into the uh, lateral orbicularis oculi muscle, you can get a little bit of diffusion into the frontalis and kind of do knock two birds with one stone. So vertical lip rightids. Um, we have two different cosmetic dermatologists that train me. One does, you know, a little tiny right at the vermilion border, one about three millimeters above. I like to kind of split the difference and do about one and a half mils right above the vermilion border of the lip. I do four units right across the top, try to avoid the cupid's, um, little cupid's peak there. Uh, and then mentalis, I think some, I do two injections, usually of three, uh, two and a half and two and a half up to five, depending on what I do right in the chin, kind of helps with that, you know, part of my language, butt chin. And then platysmal bands, be very, very careful. Identify vessels underneath. Uh, always take a good history with your botulinum toxin patients. Do you have any type of myasthenia gravis, anything like that? Any trouble breathing, asthmatics, scleroderma, things like that? You don't want to put Botox anywhere near their neck. And then hyperhidrosis, there's probably a few in the audience. I know I'm looking at one who knows a lot more about this than I do. Uh, but axillary 50 to 150 units divided among 10 to 20 sites. I do them about a centimeter apart. You can do them intradermally or subdermally and repeat about every six to 12 months. Um, Palmar local anesthesia, this is kind of fun to watch. We use one of these little vibrating tools. We'll have one nurse kind of vibrating on the hand to distract. and At the same time, the uh, practitioner injects. So contraindications, like I said, uh, ALS, myasthenia gravis, pregnancy and lactating women, wouldn't try it. And then also drug interactions, patients that have um, or on an aminoglycoside, not a topical gent, but something that's oral or systemic, or being treated for tuberculosis actively, I probably wouldn't do this. So these are a couple of the complications. Really, they're just, I apologize for the small slide, but it's in your uh, USB handout. Um, thing I think about is I always ask somebody what their profession is first before I do anything around the mouth. Do you speak a lot? Uh, do you, are you a flautist, if that's the pronounce, pronunciation? Um, then I always ask them before I you know, do any type of injection more pictures from Allergan's website. And then I um, wanted to give a small Dr. Jensen who asked me to be here today, wanted me to talk a little bit about pigmented lasers. This is something that you know I think every office should offer, if not a referral system, because it can be easily done, it's inexpensive, and it can do a lot of things. So targets hemoglobin. It uses a high power flash lamp to energize an organic dye and kind of produce this pulse of yellow light. 
Um, the pulse duration of traditional pulse eye laser is shorter than the calculated thermal relaxation dose of cutaneous vasculature. This is all jargon. What does it mean? What's its target? Its target's hemoglobin um, and tries to cause red cell coagulation. So this is the one we have in our office known as the V-beam. Uh, delivers kind of an equivalent fluences over variable pulse durations, capable of treating vessels of different sizes, so we have different spot sizes. Uh, and then I like it because it's got this little cooling spray before we use it. And it can also allow for slowing and more uniform targeted vessels to re reduce uh, post-treatment purpura, and we'll even use it sometimes if somebody has a special event and we gave them a little purpura with uh, you know, a cosmetic injectable. So port wine stains, this is a good example of that as well as rosacea, really, really works with those fine lines. Things I always tell patients, I don't say, you know, hey, this isn't going to work or this may last this long. I said, sir, if you have a heart attack today, what's the natural response to your blood vessels? He said, I don't know. I go, well, why do they give you aspirin? Why do they give you morphine? Why do they put a stent in you? He goes, your vessels want to open themselves up. I said, you're exactly right. So it's the same thing with rosacea. You may not destroy the vessel completely, but the natural response of a human body's vessel is to try to open itself back up. So I usually say about one to two year, but, you know, different strokes for different folks. So things you can use this for, uh, diffuse facial erythema, telangiectasias, or the erythmotelangiectatic variant of rosacea, uh, large superficial vascular lesions, infantile hemangiomas. Oftentimes you can get to these uh, before they really can sense a ton of pain or even remember it. That's good to do. Uh, stria rubra, is that really for the pigmented part of that? Not necessarily, uh, but what it the vessels, uh, excuse me, the vessels that run in the uh, superficial stria there can actually cause some collagen stimulation. Uh, and then Veruca. Make sure you wear proper masks if you treat these. So risk, scarring, intertextural abnormalities. Really know your machine and make sure your staff knows your machine. Additionally, you can also shorten scars and reduce uh, remodeling just like you would with Strie. So a couple untoward effects we, about, uh, we think about. So corticosteroids, atrophy or thinning. We already went over the intralesional, but every time you give a prescription, you know, all of these are possibilities. Uh, antibiotics. We use a lot of tetracycline derivatives for some odd reason. I don't understand it, but MRSA doesn't often seem to get uh, resistant to that, so we use a lot of it. Um, but remember, a couple of simple things. Just with acne, you can induce a gram-negative folliculitis that's no longer going to be responsive to this. Um, pigmentary changes, gums, shins are really great areas for that. Uh, and then other things just simple as vertigo or stomach upset or, man, this isn't working. What do you eat it with every morning, sir? Oh, usually a big bowl of cereal and a hunk of cheese. Well, that probably explains why. Just a couple pictures. This is steroid acne, it's probably perioral dermatitis mixed with seborrheic dermatitis. Um, so ask what they've been given before and even over the counter. You put enough hydrocortisone, 1%, you can get this. Atrophy and stria vascularis, we can get for too much topical steroid as well as systemic use. Any questions? Sorry, I talk fast. Yes? Okay. So oral antihistamines won't do anything, and usually I have no trouble and no problem with topical steroids being continued, especially on the area of the back. Coming out of allergy, um, you know, you guys do more, of, I guess, prick testing. This is complete topical, looking for a delayed type 4. Uh, the reason that we, I, I do, I like to two to four weeks, some docs say two, some say four, for systemic steroids to let your own HPA access kind of kick back into gear give you the response you want. And the reason that I avoid any type of sunlight, whether or not artificial, is it uh, reduces Langerhans cells in the superficial part of the skin who no longer act as the antigen-presenting cell and show your, your uh, CD4 and CD8 cells 
you know, why am I reacting to this? So we grade these reactions kind of zero through three uh, with plus system, kind of a zero plus, zero question mark, plus plus, and then the worst response is a plus plus plus, which is a vesicular eruption. Um, and you may not get the, the gradation of responses if you've been exposed to you know, sunlight or whatnot. Topical steroids are fine, uh, especially on the back, because if somebody's back isn't clear, you know, where we're going to do it, and if they don't have a large surface area, it's pointless to do the test anyway. I have what we call an angry back. So. I'm sorry? How many days do you have them wearing the back? We put it on Monday morning and we take it off Wednesday, so 48 hours. Okay. Sorry. Yes? So there is some data on that. Dr. Burkemper has given us many of lectures on it. Um, usually when, I, when we do patch testing, we don't adjust the methotrexate dose. If they're already on methotrexate, um, and they're still getting patch test tested, chances are they're still not getting the desirable response um, that you need. And everybody's renal function adjusts differently to methotrexate. So, you know, oftentimes I try to keep somebody at 10 to 15, but if they're at 20 and they're still breaking out like crazy, I don't drop them to 15 to check the test. Um, you know, it's just, it's not necessary. So we normally just prednisone, we avoid, and we will leave them on their methotrexate test. In terms of specific studies, I can look that up for you. I don't know off the top of my head. Any other questions? All right, so I'm going to go to my pearls now. Uh, I was asked to add the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, you mean laryngeal papillomatosis from, um, yeah, there's quite a bit of reference, and I think most of the, uh, if you look at a lot of the, uh, the data, it's actually in OBGYN studies, uh, where they do a lot of ablation without proper uses of masks and covering in, uh, um, I use the, the TB mask, personally. I always wear the, uh, you know, whatever one's approved for your current institution for, uh, you know, if there's some sort of a TB outbreak or flu outbreak or whatnot, I wear that one. So. Is that with all the destructive modalities or is that just with... I don't do it with liquid nitrogen ever. Uh, anything you can have aerosolized, so anything that if you shock normal skin and saw a little bit of a poof, so I do do it if I'm just doing electrodesiccation, uh, electrofulguration, uh, or even just electrocautery, I always do wear a mask, uh, um, patients, if I'm doing that. Even if it's like something that I, you know, I shaved off and I'm darn sure it's a veruque, I still wear my mask when I, you know, uh, cauterize the base. Any other questions? All right, I'm going to jump to my pearls here. So. Within reason, try everything on yourself that you've tried on your patients. Uh, I'm not saying shave everything, you know, shave biopsies, punch biopsies, but empathy goes a lot longer and a lot farther than, uh, you know, than sympathy does, I think, with respect to explaining. You know, if you've never had, had an injection with lidocaine, let your med student or your PA student, your nurse, or even your MA, who let anybody, you know, the receptionist, why not squirt some of that in your arms so you can explain to the patient. Uh, practice what you preach. You know, if you come in looking pretty tan and you're saying, hey, wear sunscreen every day, you know, you know, and then dermatology is a, you know, is a big team. No player is important, more important than another. We have our doc meeting, nurses meeting, PA meeting, nurse practitioner meetings. But when it all comes down to it, we work as a big team together to, you know, with the common goal of making the patient better. So uh, never disrespect anybody else and try to understand that, you know, they shouldn't either. And then give back to your community. Um, we're all successful. This is a high paying field no matter what we do. Always give back to those less fortunate animals, whatnot, like my little friends here. This is my new guy, Monroe. He was uh, in the Sykeston pool a couple months ago, and his brother, Captain. So, 
All right. And thank you to Dr. Jensen, Dr. Vidal, and uh, Kimberly Brown. Thanks, guys.